Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Fans, if you're into sports betting, BetOnline is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets during games or futures for who you think's going to win the championship, BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all of your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next big game, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Welcome once again, everybody, to our podcast, Mike and Mark with you. And our guest today, Mark, is Jim Edmonds. And I got to tell you, this guy, if he's not, he should be a YouTube phenomenon. His defense and those highlights are that good. Defense was unbelievable, Mike. And I'll tell you this, which was interesting. Uh, I was in the minor leagues with the Angels, and Jimmy Edmonds was a year ahead of me. And it it was a, a quick ascension and a spectacular player. But I'll also say this. Not until he got traded from the Angels to the Cardinals did Jim Edmonds grow up in the game, in my opinion. I was already in a St. Louis Cardinals uniform and then went somewhere else. But Jim Edmonds came over to St. Louis, and man, his career just went crazy. He became that defender that was on the main stage, but also got to the postseason and really made a name for himself. I think he's a borderline Hall of Famer because of his seven to eight years of consistent baseball. He was an unbelievable player and did it with a lot of athleticism. Jim, 17 years in the big leagues, four-time All-Star, World Series champ, lot to look back on, some wonderful moments. But when you think back at your wonderful career, what jumps out at you as your signature moment? Man, I don't know. I guess maybe the play that put me on the map was probably that catch uh, in Kansas City in in 97, I think it was. Um, I think that put me on the map. And then that was the year, you know, uh, my, my offense started kind of coming together. I mean, I had some big years, 95, 96, but I think that catch for some reason really flipped the switch on just being a multi-talented uh, or tooled player and not just a one-dimensional, maybe a hitter or, or a defender. It would kind of just kind of threw um, the whole thing on the map. Yeah. I mean, against David Howard, uh, he's hitting the baseball, you, you, for our listeners, understanding that defense was your marquee, um, but obviously the all-around play, Jim, is is one of those things that you think of. But that defensive play in particular, which is really interesting to me, being a former outfielder, but uh, playing center field and being able to handle deep center fields, it didn't uh, get you away from playing a shallow center field, which you did against David Howard, not known for power, But that particular play, if people go on YouTube and watch it, Jim, some of the particulars that I thought was really interesting is you put your head down to gain ground and try to get so much much momentum, but you have awareness of where that ball's going. David Howard, left-handed hitter, so it's slicing just a little bit, even if it's hit to center field, and you turn over your left shoulder, and you take off and, and running, you do a couple flash looks. But if you watch that play, it is actually over your left shoulder when you catch the ball uh, outstretched. Take take us through the thought process of when you're going after a ball like that and just your reactions and, and working off your athletic ability. Well, you know, first of all, I think all my years spent kind of from like Little League on, I did a lot of hitting uh, and a lot of shagging outside. 
uh, Cal Poly um, Pomona. We would go out there and a couple guys would take 100 swings and I would run around the outfield. And it was funny because as we got older, we kind of took a little pride on taking some hits away, even though it was in batting practice. It was kind of this challenge I had with my best friend. So I think I had the gift of maybe, um, you know, I could recognize ball off the bat. You can hear the crack and then you get the flight instantly. And, um, you know, even if you watch guys today, the first jump is always so important. It doesn't matter if you turn, if the ball is straight over your head, it doesn't matter if you turn left or right, as long as you get out of the hole. And so basically, you know, I opened up early um, to the left and just took off running. And my thing in batting practice was always like, put your head down and see how much ground you can cover in your first three steps. Like see how long you can get. because. I always pictured like Devo running for a ball, right? Like Devon White, like the strides were like eight yards long, I felt like. So I was always trying to figure out how to stretch out strides. And it was just one of those plays where I knew he hit it. It's really funny because if I was standing deep, I could have probably just sat underneath it all day long and it would have came straight down. But, you know, I jumped out of the hole and took off and I thought to myself, and the way I played defense was I have to catch this ball well, we're going to lose this game. And I think the winning run was on first, maybe, and the tying run was on second. And I, that's all I was thinking about. And I, I um, made a play similar to that about two or three years earlier in um, Venezuela. And the guys still get text messages and random chats on, in, on the internet and stuff. People say, you still made the best catch ever in Venezuela. So it was just something that happened, you know, and I just, I don't know why, playing a receiver, you know, kicking field goals, playing quarterback, playing free safety, playing soccer, just always around the ball. And so it just is one of those plays that, you know, and I did see the ball the whole way. And you're right. It is funny when I kind of reached out, I remember kind of having to go a little bit over the left side of your shoulder. The ball was coming straight down, but it was coming at an angle. Um, you know, and then all I could think about was, oh, my God, do not let this fall out of your glove. <laughs> and you know what? When, uh, As Mark pointed out, you folks, you've got to get over to YouTube. A defensive highlight tape like you have never seen. Uh, honestly, the way you're able to turn your back to the plate and just go and comfortably leap uh, and catch balls over your shoulder, truly remarkable. But on that particular catch, I noticed you sat there on the warning track. It almost appeared as though you yourself were in disbelief. Is that true? Uh, I was kind of like, you know, Tim Salmon was right there to the one side and, and uh, Garrett was in left, Anderson, and Timmy was running over. You know, these guys played hard. And as soon as I turned around, I was like, wow. And Tim was standing right there and he had the biggest smile on his face. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and he just picked me up and I started running off the field like, you know, I didn't even know what to say. It was just like, you know, at that moment, I knew I made a really great play, but I never thought it would ever have this kind of impact in baseball. Jimmy, did you ever have any interaction with David Howard? Because this is obviously a friendly game. You're playing every single day. The, the competition part, it had to be such a disappointment for him knowing he hit it over your head, but then you're hitting it to Jimmy Edmonds. That's not uh, the easiest thing. Did you have any interaction you, with him? You know what? I've had more interaction with him lately than I had at that point. I mean, I knew who he was. Um, I uh, have actually was at a uh, charity function in Kansas City um right before covid about what a year so a year and a half two years ago with him he was there um and i've spoken to him on the phone i have some friends that live in his area and every time they play golf they'll facetime me or you know everyone's got to tease him a little bit because it doesn't have any pop but uh <laughs> no i think it's great you know how it is mark it's such great friendly competition and 
um, you know, every day playing in the big leagues with, with a group of guys that share this one thing in common is just a blessing. So yeah, I love every minute of it. You talked about shagging flies as a kid and just having some natural, obviously talent and instinct for this, but Anybody you grew up with, a, a family member, a friend, a coach who was particularly helpful in you developing that defensive skill? You know what? Um, I hel- I just hit a lot with one of my best friend's dads. His name was Randy Capano. And uh, he, I think he played in the minor leagues, but he threw to us year round, you know, and uh, whenever we could get outside, he threw to us on the field. I know we hated picking up balls and that's why I was always trying to run around and catch him. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing was his son was a shortstop so he would just take ground balls at short and then I would have to end up running out there and picking up the balls anyway so um, I think that that just really helped I, I really do I think I took more balls off the bat than probably anybody in this world just because of that you know scenario um, you know we had 100 baseballs in a bucket and he would throw 100 at a time and I would run around the outfield and chase him down so I think that and I just think you know my dad was a really good athlete he uh he went to Cal State Fullerton and then he left, um, but he played basketball, football, and baseball in college. And uh, he ended up going to the Laverne, and, uh, you know, which is in Pomona here in, in Southern California. And he played all three sports and, and he, you know, he started in all three sports. He played, he pitched, he played tight end. He um, played center on the basketball team. So he was a really, really good athlete and he was still running, um, running kids to death when when I was in high school and he was 36 or 7 he would still run kids up and down the court on Saturday afternoons at our high school so he was a pretty good athlete for a long time and I think it's just where it came from yeah it's interesting uh, where we uh, find our athletic ability or you transfer into other sports into uh, the game of baseball but your hard work turned into eight gold gloves which to me I I think that's amazing Uh, you see the consistency of what you did. Um, it's interesting too. Um, I love it. I love seeing that. Um, when you had gold gloves, Jimmy, uh, you you pick a a glove and a model that you probably stuck with. What was that in and what did you use and why? Uh, you know, what's really funny is I, um, used a, a certain glove in Anaheim. Uh, and I don't even know what it was. It was just a glove they gave me. But when I was in Anaheim, I was still putting the finger out. Mm hmm. And so my glove would kind of pancake. And I remember, you know, backhanding a ball one time and it almost falling out. And so I was, you know, telling myself, I need to find a new model or whatever. Well, when I got traded to um, St. Louis, I lockered next to J.D. Drew and he was breaking in this glove and it just was a bigger pocket. Uh, It was a different type of glove. It was more of an H-Web versus that old school. um, I don't even know what they call that. Remember the old days when it was all just like a, full on pocket was just inner one. It looked just like a mesh bag. Yeah. Um, and so, um, actually I had one in here a little bit ago, but, uh, so he showed me how to break this glove in a little bit better. He would bang on it. Uh, he would put a bat between his legs. He'd take his glove, hold the edges of it and bang on it, but he would bang on it right below the pocket. And, uh, he would open up, say, if this was the pocket, he would open up this part behind it. And it would create this deeper, it was almost like a deeper um, pocket. It was behind the pocket. So it just gave you that much more room. And he did that for me. And I put it on my right hand and I called um, Stevie Cohen and I was like, I need a new glove. 
Uh, and then, so I don't even know what the name of it was. It was just something that JD showed. I said, I need this glove. I broke it in and started using it immediately. And it changed the game. And I started, um, it had the open back. So I started putting my fingers in on the edge. You know how everyone puts that extra finger over. Yep. And then it gave me a bigger pocket and kind of the rest is history. And then um, maybe two years later, I would ask them to send me like 12 gloves in the off season. And I would go through them because I wanted them super tight on my hand. And then I would send back the 10 that I didn't like and keep two. Well, I got them. And you know when they started etching your name on the yep. glove or your number? And every time they did that, I hated them. So I said, <laughs> send me 12 gloves straight off the rack. I don't want my name. I don't want my number. I don't want anything on it. And I would go through it. I would pick up the two. I would write 15 on there with a um, with a Sharpie. And I'd, and I'd go. And then like two years later, all of a sudden, they started saying JE15 on the um, – on the glove on the inside and that was my model yeah it's interesting stevie cohen uh of rawlings gloves also jim hughes as we all jim remember hughes. yeah jim hughes is uh one of the great ones stevie cohen has taken over for jim hughes now but uh the the glove makers are, are really important because to your point uh you're you have eight gold gloves and you have a certain style that you develop that you want so typically they'd give you two, three gloves, but that's interesting, Jimmy. It's it, it it reminds me of what Tony Gwynn did with bats. He would get a box of twelve bats, look at the bats, and and pull out a couple of them that he didn't think was was uh, good enough, and he'd put them yeah, to the, the side. Grains, and, the grains and, were too yeah too soft. Yeah, exactly. But it it really is important for that. Um, defensively, was there one guy that that stuck out in the league? I, to me, what resonates the time that you played was Andrew Jones. He also played uh, very shallow. Was anyone that stuck out to you that you liked uh, watching play? Um, you know what? I, I, I think that playing in Anaheim or growing up in Anaheim, I got a chance to um, watch um, Devo, um, Gary Pettis, Freddie Lynn. And I just love the fact that they were good. And I just paid attention to them. And look at this little person right here. He's trying to sneak in. <laughs> I'm on the phone and I'm meeting. Can I call, can I get you in a minute? Can you say hi? And then you can go. Hi, buddy. Go, go finish your iPad. Right there. Um, and so I just really love, you know, Freddie Lynn, he made that play uh, diving into the fence with him and Brian Downing ran into each other, yep. broke the fence in Anaheim. That kind of, kind of showed me like, hey, um, this guy really wants to play defense. And I love just watching Gary Pettis. It's always over the wall. And I just, you know, and I, and I got called up. And I always played hard in the minor leagues. When I got called up and I realized that you could run full speed into the fence in Anaheim, I was like, this is heaven. And yeah. I did. And, I, and they would pull me aside like Finley and Langston. Those guys would be like, hey, bro, you're going to wear yourself out in batting practice. Slow it down. But you know how you are when you're a young kid. You're just like trying to run. I'm jumping over the wall and I'm running into the wall. And I'm like, well, I just want to see what I can and cannot do at this level. So, yeah, they were like, hey. Take it easy. You're going to kill yourself out there. <laughs> Let's go back to that. You talk about being uh, called up, and it was in 93. You were drafted in the seventh round by the Angels in 88. So when you were called up, do you remember the story around that, how you were told, who told you, and who you called right away? <laughs> well, let's just flash back to um, 1988, where we all were. And um, where I was is the draft was done at 10 o'clock in the morning, um, probably on a computer somewhere. Um, and first of all, I had no idea what the draft was and I had no idea what was going on. And my high school coach came into my social studies room in like third period. And he was like, Hey, you just got drafted by the angels. And I said, what does that mean? 
And he was like, what do you mean? What does that mean? The angels just picked you in the seventh round. I said, after class, come and see me. They want to talk to you on the phone. And I said, all right. So I don't really remember much from that day. And I went home and they had already contacted my dad. And he said, congratulations, you know, you got drafted. Do you know what you want to do? And I'm like, I still don't even understand. What, do you, what, what am I supposed to do? Like what, you know, the, the big league teams over there. I don't even know what the minor leagues are at this point. I'm looking at college. Um, I was a pitcher. I hurt my arm. And so um, I had a chance to go to like a lot of different major colleges. I know the Mets were going to take me as their second pick as a pitcher. And then my arm blew and I just kept playing. And so I pretty much gave up all hope on anything. And then to get drafted, I thought, okay, well, I'm not a student. So uh, um, I guess I'll try and, you know, I'll try it. And uh, to be honest with you, I didn't know how uh, important it was. I took off to the river to Lake Havasu for like three days. Um, and my dad was like, hey, you need to get back here. They're having like this little mini camp in Anaheim for your group of guys. <laughs> and I was like, well, tell them I'll sign on Monday when I get home. <laughs> so I really, I just had no clue. I mean, it is not even anywhere near uh, what it's like today. You take that journey through the minor leagues, Jim, and uh, you, you go through trials and tribulations trying to figure out uh, your offensive style and, and how you're going to present that. Double uh, A, Triple A, you you start uh, having that aspect where you say, you know what, I, I'm figuring this stuff out. Yeah. And then you get that call up, as Mike talked about. Do you remember um, how that went down, and and uh, if you were ready? Um, yeah, I think Double A uh, was really funny because um, you know I hit like 290 in A ball, but I was kind of still skinny. I just slapped the ball around. I think I hit one or two home runs a year, if that. Maybe I hit like three in two years. Um, and then double A, I remember my dad being in Midland and Whitey Herzog was our general manager. And I think I struck out like nine times out of 12 at bats at double A or just, I couldn't hit. And my dad said, Hey, I had an inter interesting conversation with Whitey Herzog today. And he was like, yeah, I was like, he said, you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a boat. <laughs> and I was like 19 years old. And I'm like, man, he was there during that series. You know, we had like a five game series in double A because of Midland, uh, the Texas league was so spread out teams would come in for five days. So anyways, my dad stayed, he flew out. Um, and I played okay. I mean, I was playing defense. John Jackson was a wide receiver at USC. He yep. got drafted. He was playing for the Cardinals in the NFL. So he left to go to minicamp. I was playing center field after that. And I don't know, something just clicked. I was like, I'm in center where I'm comfortable. I love it. And so the next three days I hit five or six home runs uh, in double A. And I started to feel a little bit better. And I got called up to AAA right then and there. It was like the all-star break of 92. And then from there on, I started learning how to do things from the older guys. Felt like, you know, I was always the youngest guy on the team, but at AA, people didn't really help. You know, you're always listening to the coach and all that. So I go to AAA, I play there a year, and then I get to that thing where they're like, you're spoiled, you, you need to work harder, you need to do this. And my, I remember my manager, and I found this out later. My manager would write out the report and he would show me this terrible report as it tried to get me to play harder, but then he sent in a different report. So I never knew this. So he was, they were kind of playing with me a little bit to see how hard I could play, how much I would play. Um, and I was just playing, man. I was 20, 21. And then, you know, they called me up the last day of the season. They waited. They didn't call me up on the first. They called me up on the seventh. Uh, and I thought, man, they're not going to call me up. So they called me in the office and they said, Hey, congratulations. Um, they're, you know, they're calling you up to the big leagues. And I literally looked them right in the eye and I said, finally, you know, and then I just kind of like, at that point I had a little bit of an attitude, you know, it's like when you, 
like when I left Anaheim and I was getting traded, I was so sick of hearing it that I was just like started to develop an attitude like, I don't want to hear it. Don't talk to me. Let me play. It's kind of how I felt at AAA. So I remember coming out of the manager's office and everyone's packing their stuff. I was like, hey, y'all, um, good luck. And I hope you guys get to the big leagues because I ain't never coming back here ever. <laughs> and so I went up and the rest was history. I literally got, got up there. Uh, Brian Anderson and I flew from Vancouver to Detroit. I walked in the stadium and they said, you're playing left field um, that day. And man, I, I didn't, I mean, other than that, it was crazy. And I forget who was pitching, but they gave up a hit and two walks, bases loaded, Tony Phillips on third, nobody out first inning. And I'm standing out there in Tiger Stadium looking around. Cecil Fielder hits a ball straight up above the roof to me in left field. And I'm standing out there like, oh, my gosh, I'm flat-footed. I got so much adrenaline. I catch the ball, and I throw a missile to home. First time I touched the ball and threw Tony Phillips out by, like, 10 feet. And everyone just looked back and was like, where did that come from? And so, like I said, kind of the rest was history. I didn't get a hit the first night, but then the next day uh, we went to Toronto, and I got my first hit off Dwayne Ward, and that was really cool. What do you remember about that that moment? Because uh, it, we always remember our first. We we talk about this on our podcast all the time. Um, that first at bat, can you take us through uh, what you remember? Yeah, um, we were losing like eight to one, and it was ninety three. So I believe this is the second year of the back to back, right? They won ninety two and then ninety three. Yep, in Toronto, and so we're losing like eight to two as usual. And they bring in Dwayne Ward. And I'm like, why are they bringing in the closer? You know, like, and he's mm-hmm. like, hey, you're pinch hitting. And I was like, oh, great. First pitch, <laughs> like 98, fastball, 98, boom. I'm like, oh, my, slider, boom. And I was like, one and one. And he just threw me a fastball. And I just tried to hit it. And I'd hit a ground rule double to left center field. And I was like, wow, this is cool. You know, <laughs> like, what, what else do I have to do? I, but I, my thing was. Um, I finally got the hit. You know, I was 0 for 3 the night before against Bill Gullickson, who was throwing 84 miles an hour and swinging through everything because I was so pumped up. And then a guy comes in throwing 98, and I got my first hit. So that was cool. Got that out of the way. Um, Didn't play the rest of the week. Came home and then was in my backyard in Anaheim Stadium, which was 12 miles away from where I grew up. And, man, walking on that field the first time was insane. Yeah, the problem was uh, Gullickson was below the hitting speed. That's what Mark yeah, always tells me. That was exactly where he was. He was <laughs> below the hitting speed. He didn't have anything at that time. He was on his last leg. He was flipping, breaking balls. He was fouling everything off and literally swinging through 84-mile-an-hour sinkers all day long. And I'm like, man, this is so bad. you remember your first homer the next year? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I was hitting – I was in Texas, and uh, Rick Helling was throwing – and I think uh, a couple guys had hit him around. We were having a big inning. And um, he got ahead of me 0-2 and, and threw a ball at my head. And I was pissed. But I, at that time, I was like, pitching was such a pattern. I was like, this guy's going to throw me a breaking ball right here. He's a young pitcher. He's in the big leagues. He just threw a ball at my head. And I was just like, I'm just a sit breaking ball. And he threw it, and I hit it into the bullpen. And I gave him, like, that glare, like, you know, who do you think you are? You're not any older than I am throwing a ball in my head. And I was like screaming and like running around the bases. Nothing was said, you know, we were both really young. And so anyways, I go to the dugout and high five and everybody next inning base hit. And I'm standing on first base and Will Clark kind of comes walking slowly. And he goes, listen, rookie, if you, if I ever catch you yelling at one of my pitches again, we're going to fight right here. Hey, who do you think you are? And I was looking at Will Clark. What? 
<laughs> and I literally, he was bitching at me, like cussing at me for like 30 seconds. And I was like, I was like, okay, my bad. My, my, I mean, what do you say? Like, Will Clark's like screaming at you. He's been in the league 10 years already. And I was like 22 years old, 23 years old. And uh, yeah, that was a humbling experience right there in itself. But I mean, I'll take it for the homer any day. Jimmy, it's interesting you bring Will Clark's name up because uh, there's always lookalikes, right? And, and for anyone that's watched you swing, you have that uh, prototypical uh, let the let the left hand off and and the follow through, much like Will Clark. Um, how did you develop that? And and was that one of those guys that you watched and said, "Man, I I just love his swing." Because to me, there's Ken Griffey Jr., there's Will Clark, there's guys that stick out that have just a pretty approach, especially from the left side. Well, you know, it's just um, a really funny story, really quick too. It's uh, guy, you're bringing up so many memories. Um, so when I was a kid, I couldn't pull the ball. And so my dad, being an athlete, being a baseball player, he would like lob me the ball like right here. Yep. He would say, pull it. And I would like inside out and he would get so mad at me, right? He was like, can't believe you can't, typical dad, right? Can't believe you can't pull the ball. And blah, blah, blah. I was like, can't believe you can't throw strikes. And so anyways, I just kept hitting that way and hitting that way and hitting that way. And then um, to be honest with you, the first year that I got to the big leagues and then even in... Um, Triple A. Most of my home runs were to left center. Um, Midland was short yep. ports to left center, uh, and then Vancouver was big. But I went to Edmonton, and do you remember old Edmonton? I yeah. don't know if you're old I, enough for that, but they had that left field wall that yeah. was like really short too, almost yep. like Houston. And so I hit a couple home runs there. But every time I pulled the ball, I had that whippy over the top swing, and I didn't realize at the time I just needed to stay back. I just thought it was my loopy swing. So really funny is after my rookie year, I went home and I went straight to the batting cage and I sat there at Sean Green's dad's place, the indoor cage with yep. Sean Green. And I sat there with those orange balls in the arm machine. And I literally stood in there like this until the ball was almost nicking my shirt. And I said, I'm going to sit here all winter until I figure out how to hit this ball over the fence. And that's what I did every day. I just sat there and I finally started to spread out more and more and more. So I never spread out until my second year in the big leagues. And I did it with two strikes. And that's kind of how I started to figure it out because I was like, well, if I can hit a ball off the wall with two strike approach or hit a home run, and that's what happened. Triple A, I was hitting home runs with two strikes, but I wasn't hitting them, you know, in two and oh, I'd buggy whip something and just be top spin lobs. Yeah. And so that's what I did. I did that. And then, um, it, and that was actually after 94, 95, I came back, I spread out, I put on like 10 pounds and I hit 33 home runs that year. And I was like, the rest was history. And then, you know, Rod Crew was like, well, that was a great job, but now you got to do it every year. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, back to the drawing board. Yeah. But, uh, yeah that's exactly how it happened. And um, the swing kind of just, you know, you know how it is. It's like when you watch yourself on TV, it's never pretty, you know, <laughs> like I, and I kept saying like, I couldn't watch myself on TV and, Every time I'd make a nice catch, I'd go home and turn on Sports Center, and I'm like, oh, man, that wasn't that good. Like, no wonder they didn't show it. Or that home run, I thought it hit that better, or I thought that looked better. The worst critic in the world, but um, that's just how that developed. I really just, um, I had that loopy swing my whole life, and I just tried to tighten it up a little bit and stay back to be able to pull the ball. Yeah, self-critical, and and you know what? It's it's better to do that. Let everyone else tell you how good you are. I mean, you mentioned Rod Carew. He was the hitting coach, ninety-two to ninety-nine in Anaheim. Uh, we know what he did with the ball. The Hall of Famer in nineteen ninety-one was inducted. Um, 
I've been around him. I was with him in Milwaukee. Um, it's it's interesting because he had a certain style to be able to hit the ball the other way. And you mentioned to your dad, like you stayed inside the baseball. I think there's a lot of worth to that because I think it's harder to teach someone to go the other way if you're a pull oh, sure. hitter rather than if you're a pull hitter. I mean, if you're going the other way and learning how to pull, did you feel that way moving forward? And how much impact did Rod have on your on your hitting? Well, first of all, um, yeah, there's a couple points that you're you're talking about right there. First of all, my dad too, like three quarters of the way through my career, we were out laughing one day, and he's like, "Good thing I never taught you how to pull the ball, huh?" Like as a yeah. joke, like I would have screwed you up for life. Um, Rod Carew was amazing. Uh, Rod Carew was hard as hell on me. He was like, "You can't wear those socks. You're a rookie. You can't wear those shoes. You're a rookie. Take that wristband off. Be there on time. Where's your belt? Why is your shirt untucked?" But Every time I was in a struggle or every time something went wrong, first person to sit down next to me on the bench, put his legs, you know, hand on my leg. And I was like, man, I can't believe he missed that slider. He's like, no, son, that's not the point. You didn't swing at the 1-0 fastball right down the middle. And then the next at bat, 2-0 fastball, I would foul it off, whatever. And he goes, why were you late on that 2-0 fastball? You know fastball is coming. You need to be early. You need to be cheating and be on time. Every at bat was like he was in my ear and he just helped me. My brain, it started working and developing faster. Even though the game still was hard, it was still starting to understand things. Um, and he, he was just, it's just another level. Like now I started to talk to my son and, you know, and that's what I'm working with my son. So going back to how you can pull versus that. The thing about pole hitters is that we don't realize is their bat normally, bat path will come down through the zone and quicker yep. you can't hit the ball the other you can't take the ball the bat this way and hit the ball the other way mm -hmm. you have to stay inside of it and you've got to kind of get a little bit you know that this elbow like a golf swing almost has to come down this way where a lot of pole hitters don't they just kind of go this way mm -hmm. um i think one of the things that made albert so unique is if you really paid attention to his swing he could do both most people can't do that he could come down through a ball and yank it or he could stay on a ball and hit it deep. No one else can do that in this game that that I can remember like that, um, especially right-handed. But yeah, you it's you can learn how to stay back and, and, and get the bat out front and pull when you've gone the other way. But uh, you know, it's funny. I, I work with a lot of these guys now that uh, you know behind the scenes, and my whole thing with a lot of these big leaguers is when they struggle. Is if you watch when their front foot lands they're still moving forward mm -hmm. that front foot that you're hitting against. They used to tell us you hit against your front side. Right. They don't teach that anymore. They're talking about spin rate and this and that and swing, 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 and trying to um, replicate uh, game speeds on the mound and batting practice, which I would have just walked away because I don't need my hands broken at three o'clock. Right. Um, but a lot of guys they'll, they'll land and then that front leg will still roll and that whole body, their whole body will keep drifting. And, and that's where a lot of guys get in trouble. And that's what I tried to fix. And as soon as I did that, I became a guy that could pull. After, after your seven years with the Angels, uh, and as you talked about the influence of a Rod Carew and others in your career, you get flipped to the Cardinals uh, in March of 2000. What was that experience like? Um, well, scariest thing ever. Um, had no idea what was going on. My only saving grace was that uh, one of my best friends on the Angels just signed there. I was a pitcher, Mike James. He signed there about two weeks before spring training. 
And I got traded with about two weeks left in spring training, I think. Um, and so I, I was scared to death. You know, I went through all the emotions of you said you weren't going to trade me. And then Stoneman was like, no, I said I wasn't going to trade you to New York. And I was like, you're a stinking liar. And the whole anger thing. And I went home and packed and I just got on a plane. And I get off the plane and I'm walking through the, the airport. And Mike James is sitting in the bar with his feet up on a table and two huge beers. And he's like, dude, you're going to love this. And so I got there and, he, you know, if it wasn't for a guy like that grabbing me, showing here's your room, here's how we get to the field, just make sure you're up in the morning. This is how it all goes. Um, without him right then and there, I would have struggled. You know, it been, I would have been terrified. I was still a young kid as far as 29. I'd never been anywhere in the world. We didn't have any money to travel. You know, my dad and I, if we went anywhere, we drove. Um, and I walked in the locker room the very first day and Mark McGuire is sitting there at his locker in the corner. Sean Dunstan and Eric Davis were on the team at that time. And they are both fighting and laughing and rolling around on the floor and guys are just having a blast. And I'm like, wow, what a different clubhouse. This is going to be awesome. As soon as I walk in the door, Tony LaRusso called me in and he was like, hey, here you go. You're a center fielder. We believe in you. We don't want any to worry about the past. We don't want to worry about anything. Um, your right fielder is JD Drew. He's super young. He's very vulnerable. Um, you know, take it easy with him. He was our center fielder and we just pushed him over. Uh, and then kind of, I have a lot of stories going on for that, but at that day I was just like, wow, this is awesome. Well, Jimmy, when you go in there and, and I was fortunate enough to be in the Cardinals uniform too, um, and being traded over there and experiencing that, uh, what resonates with me is when you walked in that locker room, you un you almost felt the history of yeah. the game. Um, and I say the game, obviously it's the Cardinals. They have rich history. But did you sense that? And, and how much different was that from the Angels coming over to the Cardinals? Well, I, I sensed it um, a little bit as far as like, you know, you get there first day, first game, standing ovation in spring training. You know, the history, I didn't know anything about the Cardinals, um, obviously. Uh, but what I did notice is when the season started, same stuff, fans, over the top, everything. But you see the general manager every day, every other day with Walt. You see the owner, Mr. DeWitt. You see uh, Billy, his son, is now the president. They come through, they say hi. Their, their wives come in and say hi, welcome. I mean, this is a family. This is a, and then all of a sudden, you start to look around and you're like, oh yeah, I remember these guys. I remember, uh, you know, Willie McGee and all this. You know, kind of, we grew up in California, kind of right. a just a different atmosphere where you don't really, I knew the Angels and that was about it. Angels and Dodgers, right? And the Yankees, because they played the Dodgers in the World Series. But I started getting it. And then I started noticing that they care. Uh, they want you to win. They want you to succeed. They want to give you everything that you need to succeed. They want to make sure you found a place to live. They want to make sure you have a car and, and make sure you're comfortable. And uh, I mean, that was the first um, thing I noticed right away. And when you think about it, Jim, when you walk in there, uh, yes, there's influences you mentioned already. Uh, Mark McGuire, did he have a huge impact on on you just getting comfortable there? Yeah, he did. He was really good about, um, you know, well, the first thing I noticed um, was the fact that he was never at his locker and we were locker next to each other. It was one big one in between us. And I, I was like, okay, where is he? So I started following him, you know, so he's in the weight room, he's in the hot tub, he's uh, stretching, he's in the cage, he's back in the weight room, he's stretching, he's in the cage, 
you know, he's ready to go for batting practice. So I was like, okay, the days of me just sitting in my locker and staring at the clock are over with. I'm going to do what he does and I'm going to figure this out, uh, how he, you know, gets better. Um, and then I started talking with him a lot. And then that year, that 2000 year, having um, real hardcore veteran leadership with him, uh, Eric Davis, Sean Dunstan. We had a guy named Thomas Howard, who I know you remember. Yep. Um, when, ha- when you have three guys that aren't afraid of the manager and they play hard and they're not your everyday players anymore, having those guys kept the team loose, but they also kept you in check. And anything that went wrong, man, they weren't afraid to say anything to you. And it was just like, it was gut-wrenching if something went wrong because you knew someone was going to be down your throat. But uh, yeah, uh, Mark's deal was just um, follow him around, do as I do. Um, and it really worked. A hardworking, grinding type player with an immense talent, clearly with McGuire, but also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Albert Pujols. Uh, who you saw him make, what, six all-star seasons of, of 10 that he had there. It was unbelievable as a fan to watch. What was it like for you as a player? What, if anything, too, were you able to glean from him? Well, um, the best thing for me watching him was we became instant friends. Like, he was my left fielder most of the time. He was third base. But he really was like, I, I did to him what guys did to me as I helped him out. I helped him, you know. When he was in the outfield, I was letting him know every pitch that was coming. Hey, heads up on this play. It's coming to you. Hey, don't worry about this. And so it really helped, and he really appreciated it. And then watching him hit, it was it, I don't even know what to, how to explain it. It was a joke. I mean, I hit behind him a lot, hit in front of him. But I would walk up to the plate, and catchers would just be shaking their head. I'm like, bro, try to hit behind him. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm watching it every day. Like, It's almost like, okay, when am I going to get hit? Because they're tired of him getting hit, so they're throwing at me and I mean, it, it was just, it was amazing to watch. He didn't give in. He didn't care who you were. He, I've never seen anyone with a chip on their shoulder and, you, and, and him not present it. You could see it. Never talked about it. Didn't care. He wanted to be good, but he never said it. And you could just see the determination, man. And didn't even bother with anyone. He just, you know, he just went out and did his job. And 2001 and spring training, he played so well. The veterans were like, you can't leave him off this team. And they were basically like, we got nowhere to play, you know, nowhere to play him. He's like, well, we really don't have an everyday left fielder and we really don't have an everyday third baseman. So figure it out. And then, you know, I think that was kind of the end of Ray Langford a little bit right there when he came to San Diego, right? Yeah. And then, um, he, and he got hurt. And then we didn't really have a third baseman. So he, they flip flopped Albert all the time. Uh, and then, and then, um, and then at an one Mark ended up getting hurt at the end. And that's when he retired, I believe. And so off Albert went and the rest is history, but I think he was there 10 years, maybe. And I think the first seven or even 10 straight, he was 30, 100 and 100 and maybe even almost 100 walks. So I don't think anyone's ever duplicated that or, or ever will. Yeah, it's interesting, Jimmy, you, you, you bring up the, the point and I want to, Go back to McGuire, too, because uh, right around when Albert was coming, Mark McGuire was going through a lot of knee issues. And it it resonates with me because uh, in 2001, I was with Milwaukee and you guys came in. And I remember this story, which is 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 one of these funny stories. But Mark McGuire was coming off the injured list Um, that that was the days where they called the disabled list. But he, he was coming off and he wasn't ready to play. Uh, and obviously, being in the National League, you don't have the DH. Tony Larusa 
actually hit him lead off. Do you remember that when he hit him lead yes, off when he came? I did. Yeah. So uh, one of the funniest stories that I'll ever remember is that in Milwaukee, we were a, a really bad team. So you guys come in. Mark McGuire is the story because they're still talking about 1998 and the performance he did with Sammy Sosa. So everyone's all excited about Mark McGuire coming back. So he's leading off that day, and I remember it was Aaron Miles who was supposed to be second base, and Mark McGuire was announced as a second baseman. <laughs> and why I say this is that my good friend, and I don't know if you've played with him, was Jamie Wright, and Jamie Wright is oh, yeah, starting I that day. I absolutely yeah. love Jamie Wright. So he's starting that day, and the story goes, the Milwaukee fans were more excited because our team was horrible. They were excited for Mark McGuire's at bat. So here comes Mark McGuire. He got a standing ovation in Milwaukee. And Jamie Wright's sitting on the mound, and he's got to perform. And what does Jamie do? The first pitch, he drills him in the ribs. And Shut up. I don't remember that. So he drills him in the ribs, and Mark McGuire is like, really? Like, uh, uh, this is my only at bat? Because they oh, double switched. One. Yeah. They, they double switched right after. And Tony La Russa wanted to get him in at bat. That's what his his deal was. So he casually takes his his uh, shin pad off, throws it to the side, and walks to first base. And here comes Aaron Miles, and he's Friendly going. Now. And Aaron Miles goes to first base. Mark McGuire walks back to the dugout, and Jamie Wright got booed relentlessly <laughs> at home oh, against Milwaukee. Or <laughs> and I had to just. I had to tell you that story because I know, I mean, you're, you're in the middle of it. It's just one of those things. And you think about Mark McGuire and the impact he had uh, on, on the St. Louis Cardinals. But that uh, particular was really a funny story. I, I, I digress. Awesome. And I That's tell you awesome. this but, too. You know, JMO came over and played for the Cardinals and he right. played in a couple of playoff games. Yeah. He was, I loved him, man. He was it, awesome. Incredible teammate. Uh, one of the funniest guys around. Um, it, it takes me, Jimmy, and, I, and and like I said, man, I had to tell that story because it. it's one of those funny stories you remember as a as you go through. But Tony La Russa and, and the Hall of Fame manager, now he's managing the Chicago White Sox. But the impact he had, uh, because he was my manager too, Jimmy, I always felt that he was always watching me and there was always an intensity about him on a daily basis that uh, it's it's hard to do. Tony La Russa, obviously a Hall of Fame <laughs> it's manager. Hard it's hard to do. What impact did he have on your career? Um, and I think what just what you said. Um, but what he did to me is, you know, um, and I guess just because the trade, being the center fielder, playing every day, Still being young, he knew he could have an impact on my career and me as a leader. And so he basically did the same thing Rod Crew did to me, but in different scenarios, right? And it was like, um, you know, he would just tap you on the butt and be like, hey, you know, I love this, this little stuff. Like he would always just have stuff for me each day. You know, like uh, we were down six to nothing. He was like, hey, here are the days you have to perform. Everyone's watching you. You have to have a good at bat right here. Um, now is when you have to run in and off the field when you're down 10 to two. Um, you know, anyone can do it when you're winning. These guys are watching you, you know, and he was watching, but it was just those, Hey, your teammates are counting on your, Hey, your teammates are always watching. Hey, you're the leader. You can't be at, you can't be last out of the dugout anymore. Hey, this, Hey, that. And it was just like this relentlessness of, and then the bottom line was because 
will win. And that's all. I have a funny story for you. Talk about um, how we could always do it, right? So when he retired, he came over, he brought me a bottle of wine one time at the restaurant and he retired and he came and he sat down and I said, finally, you've retired and now maybe you can have a personality. <laughs> he was just like, I mean, I didn't play for him for like eight years and he was like, I'm like, how you doing? He goes, I'll let you know at 10, 30. Right. Like, We're still doing this? You know, like, really? And so finally I said, oh my God, you're retired. Now you're going to have a personality, I hope. Like, you know? And so then he took on the role over in Arizona or wherever with Boston and then he would come into charity events and you would see him. He would be like, yes, yes. And I'm like, you're not even the manager. You don't even have any ties. And you're watching the Arizona Diamondbacks play on your iPhone. And I'm like, this is too much. You just got to stop. And he was just like, I can't, I can't. But he did. He, He taught me how to play the game. And he taught me how to grow up off the field. Um, and I think it kind of resonates, right? If you're a professional and you do your job, you're also going to be a little bit more of a professional in life. And he's teaching you how to lead. So how that's how you lead your kids, right? And that's how you lead your household. That's how you lead maybe when you're working. Um, you know, you're setting an example for the people around you that are watching you because you're the celebrity. Um, and I just thought it went hand in hand, man. And I'm like, he was like second. No, Rod was like my first, my dad, then Rod, it was my second father. And then Tony was like my third. And um, and there's no way I'd ever be the player I was without Tony LaRusso. You know, what's cool too is, is Rod got to see you make an all-star team with the Angels. And then uh, Tony saw you make three, four in your career. Any one of those all-star appearances stand out to you? Um, I thought it was pretty special to be able to start a couple of them. I think I started two for sure. And especially started at two in center field. I thought that was awesome. Um, I, I believe I started in Atlanta and in Chicago. Um, no, I thought it was just pretty incredible to be there the first time when I was young because there was still that older veteran presence. You know, you're still watching the Cecil Fielders and, and guys of that era and uh, the Mattingleys and all those guys. And then, you know, then it started to shift where now that's my peers, um, my second all-star game. Uh, and then, you know, then it kind of all of a sudden now I'm sitting there in a group of guys with listening to Billy Wagner and all these guys talk and in the corner with all the best closers in the game. And it just kind of evolved into, you know, I, I'm disappointed I didn't go to more, but it was a really being an all star. If you're not a household name, it's not easy, especially when the fans are picking it. And if you don't either go to the World Series and your manager's there or you don't have a really good first half, which, you know, that's not easy to do all the time especially when the beginning of the season's cold. Um, you know, I just thought that it would be nice to have more all-star games, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. Even at, But even at the end, it was like, even after four, you're kind of like, as a center fielder, you're like, man, I'm beat. Like, let me get in, let me get out. I didn't worry about ever having a home run or an extra hit or too many innings. I was just like, I'm not going to go to 10 all-star games, so let me just get in the game, enjoy it, get in at bat, and then let somebody else get in there and play because they might have not got an opportunity in the past. I think it's remarkable when you think about the uh, the grind that you're talking about putting yourself through as a player every day just to get acknowledged uh, by the fans, by your peers, and play in a wonderful city like St. Louis. Uh, I'd like to talk about your postseason appearances. And the reason I think it's most interesting is we started this podcast with 
moments that were most memorable to you. And we said, what your, we asked you what your signature moment was. You thought it was the catch uh, in Kansas City in 97. But there are a lot of Cardinal fans out there who would say maybe your most defining moment of your career were the 2004 National League Championship Series performances. Uh, you had a big home run, spectacular defense. Put that into some context for us, if you would. Um, it's hard, you know, uh, and I think Mark will attest to this. After all these years, you're basically just watching it like a fan. You know, I'm seeing the highlights and I'm like, wow, that was cool. But I don't really remember it uh, as well as I wish. Um, you know, I, I had an, uh, the ability to, the, and first of all, the season is a grind. It is. It is more like you said, I was busting my ass day in and day out, hurt, struggling, mental, gone through a divorce, uh, everything you could possibly go through uh, during the course of a season, bodies beat up, it's hot as hell, um, you know, uh, then you get to the playoffs. And all of a sudden, um, the first year, Tony said, hey, I'm going to give you a day off. Do you want to play the last game of the season for uh, it's fan appreciation day? He goes, I think you should play for the fans. I said, no, I'm beat. I said, just give me another day off. I, if I can get two or three, four days off, I'm telling you, I'll be a different person. So he gave me the last two days off. We had two days before the first game. And I think I went like nine for 12 against Atlanta. And, and I, that was the beginning of the relationship where Tony started to trust me because I knew my body. Um, and that kind of playoff stuff was like, okay, now I can figure out how to get my body ready. Now my mind, I wasn't scared. I loved it. I loved that everyone was watching. I loved that everything was on the line. I love playoff hockey. I love Super Bowls. I love the playoffs. Um, I play in 800 game sevens and I would lose half of them just to play in them to get that opportunity because there is nothing in this world like the energy from the playoffs from the fans and the mental aspect of it. And I was able to just focus in um, and there was different reasons, but I just knew it was game time and everyone was out there to do one job. And I just figured... I'm going to lock it down. And I was able to do it. I don't know why, how um, I got stronger. I got more, uh, more prepared. I did a little bit more homework um, and I got the best out of the guys around me. And that was just playoff time was just amazing. And yeah. uh, you know, those moments that home run and that catch, I was just, I look at it as this is doing my job. I always wanted to be in that situation. The worst thing was in that game six was Brad Lidge came in and pitched three innings and no one could hit him. And I was like, can we just get this guy out of the game? And literally, um, that was like, I don't even know how many pitches, uh, what's his name, uh, Maselli threw. I don't know if there's, I can't remember. There might've been just one out, two pitches, whatever. He threw like three or four pitches and game was over. So we got Brad Lidge out of the game and then hopefully, you know, somebody to get a run. Yeah, you say uh, you're just doing your job, but I think a lot of players are defined by coming through at that big moment. I mean, I think that's what, is fascinating. I loved your reaction of the home run because it was, it's almost like letting go, right, Jimmy? Yeah. And there's there's emotions I think our listeners don't understand. Whether you're the 25th guy on the roster or you're the guy that's the starting center fielder, it's pitch by pitch, the intensity, the, the, the want, and to get to that final stage. In 2006, um, you guys finally win the world championship. You individually, you collectively as a group, 
going against the Detroit Tigers and you win it. Take us through that scenario and what that meant to you with all the things you went through in the game. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, every year that you're in the playoffs and you lose, my first thought is I got to go through all of that just to get right back here. Mm-hmm. You know, San Diego, every year started off in San Diego or L.A., and it was like, if we lose this series, I got to go through all that hell just to get to here, not even even to the next line, you know, the next game or the next game. So um, I always had that feeling. And so I, for some reason, in 06, after 04, I was like, OK, guys, listen, 05, we didn't go. I mean, we had a we should have, we could have won. I mean, we ran into the Sox and they were hot. I'm telling you, the teams that we played on, we should have been closer, if not in the World Series in 2000. 2002, we had should have could have beat the um, uh, the Giants. Uh, we just we there was a couple things. Vini didn't score on a ball. He should have scored on a tie of the game. Um, we had a you know oh oh three. We had a better team. We didn't make the playoffs. Oh five. I thought we were better. Um, I think that's when Albert hit the home run, and then they came back and beat us. And then 06, and I was just like, hey, there's got to be a way that we can figure this out. Let's get a little bit more into what we're doing. And I think that's the year, if I'm not mistaken. I'm on deck. Albert pops up. Piazza drops the ball. I think this is 06. I'm not sure. But it happened, and I just – so this isn't what I'm getting to. But Albert hits the next ball in the seats. And I'm like, here we go. Game's on the line. Somebody hit the ball in the hole at San Diego in between first and second. Out of the blue, a guy that never plays for us, Ronnie Belliard, makes the play of the day. He catches it. He spins, throws the guy out at first base. I think that's the, the tying run with the bases loaded at, at third and the winning runs at second, where I think we're only up by one. And I was like, wow. So anyways, we win that game. And I come off the field game one and I'm just like, this is the moment. This is like, Hey, everyone check this out. And I was like, everyone, listen, if it's not for Ronnie Belliard, we don't win that game. And I'm like, I just want to say, Ronnie, that was the play of the day. I'm standing up. I don't even know where this came from. And I'm like, Ronnie, that was the play of the day. You saved the game. I want everyone to fucking realize what's going on right now. And this is our opportunity. And it just became like this thing. I didn't even think about it. I just wanted everyone to realize that's a game changer, right? Like we do on TV. What's the play of the game? Well, why does this the play of the game? That was it. And then um, the next day, something happened. And I'm like, Jiminy, who was it today? And I was like, oh, yeah. And I got up on my chair. And I was like, hey, yo, this and then this. And then all of a sudden, we started rolling. And then they're like, someone needs a game ball. And I'm like, so it was like football, right? <laughs> and this is like, how everyone was like, how did you come up with this. And I was like, really, I just wanted everyone to realize that Ronnie Belliard's play, it's not Albert, it's not Scott Rowland, it's not me, it's not Yachty, it's Ronnie Belliard. And he's a no-name guy. He just saved our day and probably our series. And it just spiraled into this, man. They were like, you know, throwing balls at me, like give game balls away. And I was like (laughs) standing up on this chest. I'm like, Yachty, Yachty had two hits and Albert home run, and I'm like, you know, it was like uh, Weaver, pitcher, you know, pitched your ass off. Ah, and the whole team was just going nuts. <laughs> and so that just carried. And, um, you know, we, uh, Bueno put us in that situation when he struck out uh, 
Beltron in New York. I, there, I thought we could we could lose this if we're not careful. Um, and it was like, you know, when you're prepared to lose but you don't want to lose. It was kind of that. And I was like, man, we can't lose this game, but we might because it. Uh, what's his name? Chavez catches that ball over the wall. Do you remember yeah. that? And I get doubled up. So I had a dislocated toe and I had to get a shot in the bottom of my foot right here, like in the bottom of my foot every day to play that numb my whole foot. And so I couldn't run hardly at all. So I'm running around second. Chavez makes the play, get doubled up. And like our whole team was just like, there it was. Mm-hmm. We're you know, and then next inning, Supon comes in, loads the bases and gets out of it. And so it swings back over there. And then uh, I think Yachty hits the homer and then Wainwright strikes out Beltron and like, we're going to the World Series. And it was just like, see, it's possible. And it just kept going. It was awesome. I mean, it was the feeling of conquering something like that with a group of guys never goes away. And you know that. I mean, it's they're you know, brothers for life. I have friends with these guys that I played with from 2000 more to 2007, more than I'm friends with anyone. But that special, that 2006 team was really special. And uh, it's, a, it's a crazy bond. Jimmy, uh, Tony LaRusso always said to me, he said the greatest thing as a manager is to watch guys celebrate and pop champagne. Uh, obviously popping champagne, winning a World Series championship. Uh, you have the parade, you have the celebrations, you have the ring ceremony. Cool. Uh, what sticks yeah, out most hangovers. for you? Yeah, the hangovers. <laughs> what I sticks? Thought, what sticks out most? I, I thought I was going to throw up in the back of the truck the whole entire day. I don't think we slept for three days. Um, you know, it was like uh, so much fun, but we just went. You know, um, we just had fun. Guys gathered around, went back to the stadium. Guys were drinking beers in the next day, and um, just the whole thing. I mean, the city. It was insane. The parade was insane. Just the, you know, the people at the stadium. Um, but I'll tell you what, what you said about Tony, and I'm, I'm glad you said this because it made me think of something. The coolest thing I've ever seen, and I saw it kind of live, but I went back and watched it on TV. We won something. I don't know when it was. At some point, I don't even think it was the World Series. It might have been when we went to the World Series the first time or one of the first rounds. We, we won the game, and it was a game winner, like a series winner. And we were all jumping up and down, and Tony and Dave Duncan and Joe Patini were standing in the dugout watching, letting us have our moment. And it was so incredible to watch. I was like, that's interesting. They were kind of leaning up against the – standing on the field, leaning back up against the dugout. And I thought, that's interesting. And I asked him, I was like, what was that all about? He goes, it's your moment, man. You guys did it. I want to get in the way. I don't want anyone interviewing me. And I just thought that was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, if you look at it, Jimbo, um, celebrating is always the key, but also all of your fruits of your labor, especially in a Cardinals uniform, and you touched on so many different aspects, who got you there, who helped you along the way, and then you get to put on a red blazer. Uh, the Hall of Fame for the Cardinals. Uh, what was that day like? Because, man, the appreciation of what that fan base, and it's a great fan base, that fan base got to celebrate you individually for your career, especially in a Cardinal uniform. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was the first one um, that, that wasn't a real Hall of Famer. And so it was an interesting situation. So I got a phone call from someone, I forget who, and they had talked about this, what's going to happen. And then Mr. DeWitt called me and he said, hey, I want to congratulate you. Um, 
and you know we're gonna give you we're gonna put you in the hall of fame and i was like that's so awesome like the whole thing's incredible and he said i need you to get fitted for your red jacket and i was like whoa wait i'm not doing that and this is a legit story he's like i'm not going out there and taking away from gibby lou um stan um whitey uh i, I don't belong out there with those guys i will take the hall of fame thing with most utmost honor I just don't think, and I'm talking to Mr. DeWitt. And I was like, I just don't think we're doing this the right way. I don't want to take anything away from those guys. And he said, Jimmy, I'm the owner. <laughs> I'm the president. And this is how we're going to do it. And I was like, okay, but it's really uncomfortable. I just want you to know <laughs> the utmost respect for the, those Hall of Famers. Um, and I just think it's going to be really hard for me to kind of get used to going out there in a red jacket. And I said, I really don't want to do it. And he said, you don't have a choice. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a good time. It was a good conversation, but he was basically saying, this is what we've decided as a family. This is what we've decided as an organization. And, and we want you to be the first one to be, to, you know, get this honor. And so it was, you know, first couple of days, I was almost embarrassed. I mean, it was the, the utmost respect that we have uh, as an organization, as a city for those guys I mentioned, Lou Brock, you know, Gibby, um, you know, Whitey, um, Studer, gosh, so many, Stan, Ozzy. Um, I just felt like no way could I ever stand on the field with those guys. Um, and so it was, it was hard. But now that they embraced it so greatly that it's fun. Um, it's the craziest honor ever because it's like this fan base is second to none, I feel. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know what it's like. Um, I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's just blow, it blew me away. And, and we have it coming up on the 21st again. And to see those guys um, all together and just kind of like such an incredible experience. What an incredible fraternity. And um, I, I'll say this. Um, from this organization, we, we focus on the fan base. But the organization itself does such a fantastic job at on-field production um, they are very detail oriented and there's a lot of organizations that do these things, these celebrations, but not to the extent of what they do. And the reason why I say this opening day, uh, I'll never forget. I'll never forget those moments. Every, every Jersey I've ever worn opening day is special, but with the St. Louis Cardinals, here comes the red jackets. Here comes the history of the Cardinals and it resonates with you. And it even goes back to what we talked about when you got traded over um, it was almost like your indoctrination of baseball itself. That's why it's yeah. so special. And, and Jimmy, um, you deserve to be there because there's some people along the lines that say Jim Edmonds was a Hall of Famer. And I, you know what? There's a huge argument for that. But I think it resonates probably with you is the body of work that you put in. You're getting recognition by not only the St. Louis Cardinal fans, but a great organization that's rich in history. And I, I think it's fantastic. It has to feel like, you know what, uh, that's a stamp of approval for my career and how it ended. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And it took me a while to understand that, you know, it, it's, you know, looking at it from the outside, looking in, it looks differently than if it's you. And so that first part of being uncomfortable um, was just because of the Hall of Famers. But like I said, the way everyone treats treated it it was so special and, and the, like you said the organization is so great um the, the way they take care of guys and 
they're still there. You know, the same ownership group. You still see Mr. DeWitt and, and then Billy. And then, you know, obviously Mo now is there. Uh, you see him a lot walking around. It's just, it's not really changed. I mean, COVID has really crushed uh, the way we all do business and um, and, and that aspect. But uh, yeah, it's still a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, um, I had a blast in San Diego. I, I wish like, you know, there are some places like I wish my San Diego time would have been better. Like I really struggled there. I was a fly ball hitter. Um, I had a lot of balls early in the year that didn't go out. And I really, I really was disappointed to not be able to put it together there. I think that was, that's a, you know, now you look at it, wow, what a group and what an organization and uh, up and coming classy group of guys. And, you know, I went to uh, Milwaukee and Milwaukee surprised me. I, I was shocked at how great an organization they were. So there's a lot of good organizations out there, but uh, I was lucky enough to play with the Cardinals and uh, yeah, second to none, I think. Well, you hang up the cleats uh, after the 2010 season. As we talk about 17 years as a player, you become a broadcaster, still are. Many folks familiar with uh, getting a chance to hear you behind the microphone. Is that where you want to be when you look out from here? Do you feel like any uh, need to get back in the game, uh, maybe in uniform? What do you feel like is next for you? Um, you know what? I never, I don't know how you feel about this, Mark, but I never thought I would ever be in the broadcast booth. Yeah. I really didn't. I, um, I, when I got um, the red jacket, it gave me the, uh, basically the power to stay around the locker room a little bit more, help out. Um, I got invited to spring training and I was doing that because I had a son who was at that time, probably six. And I wanted him to try to get what Eduardo Perez got, what Ken Griffey Jr. got, which is, you know, he was born a little bit later in my career, but I wanted him to experience some of the things that I thought big league kids should experience because it was just, he was the third in line and he was so young. Um, so I tried that and then I became the assistant to baseball, uh, to the president. And, and then I was in the locker room every day during the season and then in and out of the dugout. And, and I loved it, but I couldn't do it every day. I can't be away from my family that much. That's why the TV thing was so perfect for me. So what worked out was they were so great. I could go on the road. I could go down in uniform, sit through the meetings, be in the uniform as the assistant to the president, go through the coaches meetings, go through the players meetings, be on the field for uh, batting practice, be there for some of the guys and then get dressed and go upstairs and do the game. And that was the best of both worlds. And when COVID hit, they kind of just cut the fat, basically. You know, they just had to let Izzy, myself, Ludwig, and kind of just get away from um, all these extra roles. So stayed on the TV side of it for my son. He gets to come. Um, they still let him in, you know, do some things. But COVID has really squashed everything that I've tried to accomplish with that. I don't – I would love to help. I love helping. I got uh, – I have kids coming over here all the time that are in the big leagues, hitting in my basement calling me, asking me for help. I just can't find a reason to be gone for eight months a year with now my family having older and younger kids. Um, and, you know, a son about to go into high school, you know, a 13 year old daughter is that, that year, as you know, uh, Mark, Very those important. years are tough on, on girls. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, like if there was a way I, I told, uh, I told our manager, I want Chipper Jones. job. Right. <laughs> I want to I want to be the uh, hitting coordinator at the big league level, and that basically is you go kind of guy. Seemed like I was haven't talked to him about it, but 
like it seemed to me like he's involved. He can kind of come and go. He can get down there. He can insert himself when you need to. And then you can, you know, team goes on the road and you can kind of back off a little bit, but still be in, in the game plan. I love helping. I love watching. I just can't do, um, you know, six, eight weeks in spring training and 12 hours a day um, gone from home and then being on the road to go with that. It, it just wouldn't work for my family right now. No, that makes perfect sense. It happens to a lot of guys, I would imagine, who've put in the time you have uh, forming these wonderful careers, but it does require sacrifice and time away from family. So a tip of the cap to the job you've done as a player, the job you continue to do in the broadcast booth and in the community. And thanks so much for the time today, Jim. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, I, uh, you know, Swings and I have been friends for a long time and I kind of watch you guys from afar. Um, and I enjoy doing stuff like this because I love to learn. If anyone knows anything about me, the only reason I got to where I was is because I paid attention. And I'm still doing that in the broadcast booth. I'm learning a lot. My uncle was a, at a TD Ameritrade, so I'm working on like learning about money investing in stock markets. And I just love it. I just love trying to get new things. And this podcast and stuff like this has just been watching from afar. So I'm glad that uh, we finally hooked up and uh, I had a blast. Jimmy, we always we always appreciate your time, man. We always appreciate you as a player. Um, like I said, a borderline Hall of Famer in a lot of people's eyes. The way you played the game, the positioning, um, the fantastic catches, the big home runs. Uh, but more importantly, uh, you continue to give back to the game, which I think is it really resonates with me and why so many more people uh, should do that because this game is so great. Yeah, and I like I said, thank you so much for everything. And I've um, always uh, been a big fan of yours, Mark, and uh, I appreciate you being on the show. And thanks for all the kind words. And I hope uh, of the family as well and all the volleyball and all the stuff still going strong. Appreciate so, it. Uh, appreciate it. Watch it on, on the internet. It looks like a lot of fun. But thanks it again, is. you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jimbo. Appreciate it, man. Well, folks, thanks for checking out Major League Beginnings presented by Bet Online. And if you had as much fun as we did, please go ahead, hit the subscribe button anywhere you usually download your podcast from. You pick the platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.